Okay. Uh, all right then. So, uh, hello everyone. This is Carlos again, and uh, welcome back to the pod. We make the pod by talking. I'm here with our guests. Uh, if you guys can please introduce yourselves. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Fiti Beto. Uh, I'm a teacher in Oakland. Um, I teach at Fremont High School, uh, which is part of the Oakland Unified School District. Um, so I'm Michael Aire, and I'm currently a postdoc with the Inequality American Initiative at Harvard University. And in fall of 2021, um, I'll be starting to uh, I'll be joining the Department of History at the University of Nevada, Reno, uh, teaching Mexican-American and Borderlands history. Oh, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm Takashi. Uh, I'm a high school teacher over in Los Angeles. I've been teaching for the past eight years. I taught math and a um, variety of other subjects like science. And uh, I did ethnic studies and math as an undergrad. And I'm one of the co-hosts, but I'll, I'll just be like probably asking questions or stepping down back and forth for this one. Uh, but it's nice to meet you all. And uh, it, Mike, it's nice to see you again. <laughs> Yeah, so we went to undergrad together, Takashi and I, and uh, okay. I, how many, I think it was like two classes that we had together. Yeah, it was like a history or ethnic studies class. Yeah, something like that. But we, yeah, um, I mean, it's not hard to, it's hard to dislike Takashi, right? It's a lot easier to like. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so uh, we got along great uh, back then, and obviously we've kept in touch um, over the years. That's cool. Um, and I'm Daniel. I'm an educator here in Oakland. I teach at Oakland International High School. And um, Takashi and I have, I think we met over at UCLA and I've kept in touch and have had conversations about uh, politics, education, culture. Um, so happy to be here. And like Takashi, I'll just um, sort of be listening and, and see if I can ask questions when the opportunity arises. So great to have everybody here today. All right, thank you guys. And uh, so today our topic will be um, uh, Latino men in uh, PhD programs. We'll basically just talk broadly about our experiences and um, I guess just share whatever uh, difficulties or obstacles we've confronted, um, uh, some things we've enjoyed about the programs, things that helped us out personally. Um, uh, so I guess I guess I could I guess I could start. So I'm a uh, I'm a PhD uh, or candidate in the linguistics program at the University of Chicago. Uh, I've been in the program for eight years. Uh, I'm finally defending my thesis uh, this Monday, so I'm finally finishing. Great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's been uh, it it was definitely a journey for me. Uh, for, um for me the phd the the phd program was definitely something it was some, something that i probably wouldn't have have imagined for myself uh earlier in my life um i remember being in college getting interested in linguistics and sort of thinking that like well if i if i could just write a paper some like linguistic, some kind of like scientific or philosophical article about this topic, then I could like satisfy this, this urge I have to sort of, you know, know something or be smart or like, you know, have, make some like interesting contribution to world knowledge, something, something like that. And I was lucky to have a really good advisor uh, um, within the linguistics department at UC San Diego. And he basically taught me uh, everything. He basically exposed me to the world of academia that I had no idea, that I had no prior, prior knowledge of at all. I didn't know anything about going to conferences. I didn't know anything about, I hardly knew anything about publishing. Uh, journals, um, just just the the basic, the 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 day day in day out life of of a professor basically i that's this was something very exotic to me before and he kind of threw me into that and uh he was a really good guide to, for that and so in that process he sort of introduced me also to grad school he, like he did, introduced me to phd programs i don't remember if i knew what a phd was before that um but by the time i finished that was that was the idea uh, pursuing a PhD program and uh, 
he helped me, he definitely helped me get into the U Chicago program. Um, and, uh, my program, it was, it was pretty challenging. Uh, uh, Philly can attest to the general, uh, grad school climate, graduate school climate at University of Chicago. It's, uh, it's, um, pretty, it's pretty critical. Like, and for, and for good reason. Uh, um, and it, there's definitely uh, tough elements, but yeah, it's, it was def for me, it was, uh, it was a very useful journey. I feel like I came out of it, uh, definitely a smarter person. Uh, some of my habits, some of my own personal habits, some of my hobbies have definitely altered towards, um, the, the, um, the lifestyle of, of an academic like I read lots of more books. I'm always reading more books. I'd read books before, like that was sort of something I do before, but now it's, now it's something I do more than I, than I watch TV. Yeah. I watch, I, I watch, I, I, I read more books and from, I read more nonfiction for sure, more than I play video games, more than I watch TV, like things like that. So like a lot of my hobbies have been altered by that, that experience. Um, and uh, as far as the research program itself, um, it taught me, it taught me to, it taught me to be a better presenter. It taught me how to sort of organize my thoughts better, which is, which is still a challenge for me. I think that's probably the biggest challenge for me still is, um, learning how to, le learning how to put my thoughts together in ways that pe other people can understand. Um, that's something that I've taken out of it. Uh, uh, developing professional relationships with people um, that can complement friendships or can be or can can exist beyond uh, a personal relationship with a person so all kinds so all kinds of things all kinds of things uh, that I've taken from it um, there's other observations that I can make but I maybe I'll, I'll they'll come to mind after hearing more from you guys yeah thanks Carlos I mean uh, I don't know how you felt about eight years uh, mm -hmm. but I did mine, um, so are you talking about eight calendar years or eight academic years? Uh, I, they're the same. They, they, they ended up aligning. So, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I ended up taking, uh, I mean, I started September, 2010, uh, at the university of Washington in Seattle yeah. and, and that's where I did my PhD. Uh, and I ended, uh, last June. So, mm -hmm almost right pushing the nine years right the full nine years uh almost pushing it and after a while right i mean after about year six six and a half seven seven and a half eight you're like, oh my gosh when the hell is it gonna end right like when, when, <laughs> when can i actually submit this dissertation when is it going to be good enough um that was definitely a challenge that timeline um and it was it was a struggle, right? Like I mean, and uh, so University of Washington is the is the flagship school, right, uh, of the state of Washington, uh, which means you know the, the the funding the funding is really good, especially for a public university, hmm. right? Uh, so there, I mean, there were but but it's not guaranteed, right? Because you don't know how the legislature is going to vote, you don't know what kind of TA ship you're going to be awarded. You know, you don't know what kind of fellowship you're going to be awarded if you get a fellowship, right? I mean, because you put in, you throw your name in the hat every fall, right? For the following academic year. Um, but all oh, the time and the money, that was just a constant like challenge. Um, I just, you know, the knots on my shoulders, right? Like, <laughs> am I going to have health insurance next semester, right? Am I going to, uh, will, will I have to leave Seattle or, Am I, how many more roommates am I going to have? Am I going to have to get, do I have to move again? Right. Those, all those kinds of things. Um, on a grad student salary, right. In a place like Seattle. Um, but you know, my experience in my PhD program, um, you know, particularly my experience as a Latino male, uh, I, it was the, the, the real big first challenge was my, actually my, um, well, you know, imposter syndrome is throughout. Right, so imposter syndrome, like it's it's like a challenge that was, I didn't feel it in college. I felt good in college. I didn't have imposter syndrome there, probably because I'd never heard of it. <laughs> but then I got to grad school, and then I felt, my gosh, all these people know way more than me. 
I'm always playing catch up. What's the what's going on? Um, I'm trying to read as best as they are. I can't do it. What's going on? Am I not going to make the cut? Um, and so, so imposter syndrome is, you know, was as strong in 2010 as it is in 2020. But it's also like one of those motivators for me, at least, uh, that says, yeah, you know, keep reading. What, what are the new trends that are coming out in history? Um, you know, really trying to define yourself as a scholar, not necessarily as a niche, but as your own identity as a scholar. What questions do you find really, really important, important that you want to pursue in articles and in your, ultimately in your, in your book manuscript? Um, so, but I think one of my real big, you know, non-imposter syndrome uh, challenges uh, came in my second year of grad school. And so I was taking this uh, class. Uh, I had taken women's history before at UCSD, but I had never taken Chicana feminist or Chicana feminism or, or third world uh, women's feminism. I had never taken that, that class before. So I took that class in, in grad school and uh, we were reading for the first week. We were reading uh, Antalua, uh, the Borderlands La Frontera, and we were reading Meili Blackwell, uh, Chicana Power. And this was my first time being again in a non, first of all, in being in this type of class. Um, and I was the only historian. This was a, this was a, a general women's sexuality studies course. So historians tend in grad school, especially, right? We, we tend to say the book is bad because of X, Y, Z, and one, two, three, four, five, and so on, right? The book is bad, right? You, you're, you're, you're almost overly critical of the work that you're reading. And so that's how I approached Ansaldua uh, and Blackwell. And the chairs in the room, it was this kind of long table, the chairs in the room just all shifted uh, towards me and looked at me. And everybody, uh, I was like, I was the only straight, uh, the only non-LGBT uh, 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 male there, right? cisgender male there. And they all look at me, I'm like, how so? And what do you mean by that? I was like, oh, great. Here we go. Damn sweating bullets, right? Uh, like, I'm just, my heart's pounding. I hadn't even had a coffee, right? My heart's pounding. It was a three-hour class, and I said, I can't believe this is the first meeting, and I still have two hours and 45 minutes to go here. Oh, my goodness. Um, but ultimately, what that experience taught me was unlearning a lot of the things that I, that I normalized, right? A lot of ideas, a lot of uh, power dynamics, a lot of gendered power dynamics. Uh, that I learned growing up, um, and it really came to a forefront in that uh, throughout that course. So it was really figuring out, you know, un again unlearning some of these very cultural and gendered uh, ideas, and trying to redefine myself with these things in mind, knowing that I had grown up in a very, very uh, in a, in a culture that almost celebrates inequality, right, and gender division. So, you know, what, what, meanwhile, the books that we're reading are essentially about women who are challenging those same ideas, right? So what can I learn of, from, from these women, what can I learn from these texts in order to better myself in the present to help, you know, myself, um, but also my future students? Um, so I will, I will stop there because I can go on. But I wanted to relate that anecdote in particular because it was, again, it was one of those challenges where as, as, as a Latino, uh, looking at myself in the mirror and saying in what ways have i contributed to these gendered these gendered ways uh these unequal gendered ways and how can i if not completely stop myself from doing it at least know that when i'm doing it hey you're doing it again and maybe think about it if the situation comes up again the next time um yeah <clears throat> i think you know um i could go next um um, so my name is Filiberto Chavez, and um, I go by Philly. Um, I grew up in the LA area. Um, my parents are immigrants uh, from Mexico, sort of from um, My parents only got through sixth grade, um, and you know, through you know, just um, you know, like for me, I was just you know the strange kids, you know, who was really into school, and you know, I just devoured you know school books and. You know, I just wanted to know more. And, and when I was in high school, I, I started taking community college classes. And, you know, like in, in through high school, I, by, the, by the time I, I finished high school, I had like a year done of, of, of college, you know, like prerequisites. I had already finished um, through a federal program called Upper Bound. Mm -hmm. um, and through Upper Bound, you know, like that's how I was able to 
um, um, you know, to, to, to at least get, get a sense of like, this college is something I could do. College is something that I, that I, that is realistic. Um, and then from there, you know, I just, um, you know, I applied to, to, to the schools that people are saying like, Oh, like those are good schools. You know, like you should get definitely get into, you know, um, and I went to, I went to UC Berkeley and, you know, through, you know, even though, you know, again, my, my parents were undocumented, you know, and so it was like, you know, it was very, very like, you know, like my parents, when they, when they, um, you know, my, my parents dropped me off at college once, you know, like the first day for, for, uh, at the dorms and, and I didn't see them again physically on the campus until I graduated. And, and that was, you know, like, <laughs> that was just, you know, how, you know, but that was just our immigrant reality, right? Where like, my parents didn't have the funds to like travel to see me or anything like that. It was just like, you know, like, and, you know, luckily, you know, everything worked out and through another federally funded program known as the McNair Scholars, I, you know, I, I was able to, you know, to, to, to be trained to, to, to go into uh, a PhD program. And, and, um, and I did, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I started at the, you know, after leaving in 2010, which was the, the great recession of that time. And, you know, arguably, I think many of us from that generation are still living through it or the second version of that, right, through the COVID-19. Um, and I returned to LA and, you know, after trying to find a job for a while, I was also applying to graduate school and, you know, and then I applied to graduate school. I got into a really good school. And again, you know, very similar to, to Carlos, you know, like, um, you know, like it's through this, um, you know, I, I think sometimes what happens in graduate school is like, we, we have this idea of, of meritocracy, right? If you work hard enough, then you will receive the, the benefits of that system, right? And I think, you know, the other aspect of it is, is really is, is, is I think, um, of, of graduate school is really about, um, it's, uh, it's a system in which I think um, it's still very antiquated in a lot of ways where faculty know each other and through those personal connections, you're able to, you know, like, not that that's completely it, right? Just because, you know, a professor doesn't mean guarantee you a spot, but in, you know, very similarly, to me, I, I happen to to build a pretty good relationship with a historian, um, you know, um, here at the, at, he was both, you know, in the Chicano Latino Studies program, as well as uh, I studied history. So I studied both history and Chicano Latino Studies. And then, you know, um, through his, um, you know, like him, you know, knowing folks like, you know, like I was able to get an admission to university along with, you know, I think my year, you know, it was a really a year where, there was there was you know quite a number of us from 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 UC Berkeley that year and it was it was a year which I think intentionally they were trying to diversify what uh, students look like at the University of Chicago and you know sometimes directly or indirectly you know um, graduate programs they um, you know they they offer like you know these these specific additional spots that the university is willing to fund in addition to whatever, say, grant funding, like department funding that they have. Um, so I think that was the, the, the large case, I think, for, for some of us who were there, because I remember like, you know, we were like the most diverse cohort that had been there in, in a long, 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 long time. Like, you know, there was like, you know, like it was, you know, like, you know, like really like diverse, I, I think more so than, than previous years. Um, you know, and, and I think that there was a lot of things that I think you know, each university uh, has their own sort of program and their, their own sort of pedagogy or training, for better or worse, you know, and I think some of those are a little bit better. Some of those are, are um, you know, they could definitely, I think, more on the longer side. And I think especially for history programs, you know, it's not unusual to find if you're studying someplace in Asia, you know, to be doing 12 years or sometimes even a little bit longer than that. Um, for those of us, you know, who, who came in, I think my year, you know, we were, you know, you could, you could take up to 12 years to finish if you wanted to. And, you know, with a lot of pressure recently, the university has um, changed that 12 years to now like having to complete it, you know, by eight years. Mm -hmm. But that was as a result of a lot of pressure um, from both administrators who are seeing like, you know, like uh, students who are not completing the program, especially after a number of years. And uh, I happened to be one of those that did not complete uh, the PhD. Um, 
And, you know, um, I, I think, you know, I was there in Chicago for five years. Um, I was through, I went through the graduate program for about eight years. And then there came a time where, you know, I wasn't making any progress to completing that degree. And, you know, it was sort of like time to leave. Um, but, you know, I, I, I could talk a little bit about what, what were some of those factors that I think led me to, to, to leave. And I think also just, you know, because I, I think people need to hear both sides of it, right? There's a life outside of academia. Right. And that's that life is good, too. Um, and it's uh, it's also uh, one in which, you know, like for me, I think personally, I find fulfilling to teach and, you know, teaching is my passion. And that's where it initially was. Um, and um, I think also the other aspect of it as well is, you know, like, you know, being a graduate student is hard and financially it just takes a big toll. And you know, who could live on $5,000 for, you know, for a quarter, three months, you know, and uh, like, I used to work two jobs, like when I was in graduate school, I would, I would work at the library and the archives. And yeah, like they paid like, you know, I, don't know, I forget, I was like 17 or 20 bucks, something like that an hour. And then in, at night, I would work in, in the building. Um, I would, I was a building manager for one of these, um, you know, where they would, uh, these very beautiful University of Chicago building where people would have weddings or receptions and things like that. And, you know, it, it was just like, you know, after doing that for like a few years, it was just like, wait, like, what, what am I doing? Like, you know, just like constantly like working and, 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 and you know, doing a lot of those like side hustles, you know, and, and like, like you were mentioning, uh, Michael, like, you know, like, you know, like, um, is the funding going to come through from the, I think it's a little bit different for public schools, you know, but um, it's because in there you're dependent on the state legislature, but you know, in private schools, like the funding is there, right? Because you're guaranteed funding when you come in the door, at least most PhD programs are funded and except the really bad ones, right? But I think, you know, in some cases, it's, it's also like not enough to really cover, I think, like other things that as you start getting older and older, like, it's like, do I really want to ask my parents for money? And like, and in my case, like, you know, that wasn't something that was realistic. Like, you know, me asking my parents for money was like, like, no, like, I'm not even sure my parents paid rent this month. So like that wasn't even something that was feasible. So um, I, I think, you know, like roughly about my fifth year, I made the, the transition, you know, to going to teaching and I went the, you know, the, 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 the fast route or the, you know, Teach for America route where, um, and, you know, pretty much I, I learned how to teach on the job and, you know, for better or worse, I, you know, I frankly, I've talked to many educators who, you know, who done the, the teaching credential you know, through, through, through the traditional method where they have like a full year of training and as well as like others who, you know, who come in through non-traditional credentialing programs. And, you know, each, each one has its own benefit and its own sort of drawback. But, but, you know, I think if your love of teaching is there, you know, you're going you're gonna to find a way to, to, to make that connection with the students and, and, and make that connection come, come to life. And, um, I think for, for, for a lot of folks in, in academia, um, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody because I think, you know, there's definitely some challenges. I think um, if, you know, for, you know, in, in teaching, you know, like if you're really passionate about your subject, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to guide you through, you know, through, you know, having to make some, you know, difficult, <laughs> um, you know, like moves, you know, through teaching content. And I think, you know, that's, that's one, I think, pitfall that I think a lot of folks in academia sort of like when they transition, you know, to, to teaching, like whether that be community college or, you know, teaching K through 12, it's like, you know, your passion for history or your passion for, for math is, you know, may or may not be enough to, to guide you through, you know, um, you know managing a, a classroom, though with enough love and, 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 um, and effort and, 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 um, you know, frankly, you know, some days of just, you know, crying your eyes out after class and, you know, and then, you know, like in, in, if you stick with it, you know, you might like it. And, and, um, and I, I think that was definitely true for me. And I think um, that has been my, my sort of short experience in graduate school. And I think, you know, and, and I think in retrospect, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of talk right now, especially about like in, this idea of institutional failure um, you know, especially um, when, you know, after you've been in, you know, like five, six, seven, eight years in, in a PhD program, and if you're, if, you know, like you're not, you're not like graduating 
or finishing them, you know, is, is that a reflection of the institution itself as opposed to the individual, right? Because I think in an academia, we tend to like, especially for those of us that like, you know, we, you know, our passion has guided us through so much of our life and has opened up so many doors and we get to this place where it's like, you know, and it's like, and, and it, it could be hard, you know, and it's, it's definitely a really hard, I think, you know, because we, we tend to see it as a reflection of ourselves as opposed to a larger structural, like, you know, um, issue, whether that be like a personal graduate program and how they're designing their own graduate program. And I think, you know, like in some institutions like the University of Chicago, like well, at least when I was admitted, you didn't have to have a direct advisor, you know, per se, who's going to guide you through the process, like, or who's going to, it was just sort of like, you know, kind of like willy nilly, like magic, you know, we're going to throw you in there. And, you know, it's up to you to make, to, to make those connections with, with faculty. And if you don't make those connections, then you're going to be one of those students that's going to fall through the cracks. You know, frankly, like, you know, I, I think, um, you know, like there's, there's definitely like a, a lot of things that um, some graduate students, like I know like Princeton, for example, like they, you know, they're, they're pretty harsh on their students, like, but they get them out in five years, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's you know, five years seems reasonable and it seems like, because you're also thinking about like, I think how much time are you investing in a graduate program? And, you know, th th does that make sense in, in, in terms of your long career, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, th th there's definitely a, a, lot, a lot to think about and a lot to consider, but that's my sort of feel. Thanks, Willy. Uh, so before we open up to a couple more questions, I, want, I, would, I would like, I kind of want to hear everybody's experience everyone's take on how their cultural or ethnic background kind of contributed to their PhD experience. Um, since hence going along with the theme of Latino males and PhD programs. Uh, so I can start a bit. So, um, from, so basically my, my own ethnic background or cultural background contributed that, that was, that was something that I guess, was salient should have been salient from the start of my of my program i sort of in in my own research interests i made a point to sort of distinguish myself as a as a latino male uh within my program i made a point of that to do, i made a point of doing that while i was in college even because uh my own interests like the the, the topic that got me into linguistics in the first place was specifically uh the study of mexican languages me being a Mexican-American growing up in a Chicano household uh, with parents who sort of grew up in like, you know, during the times of a stronger Chicano movement where there was a lot of a lot more interest in um, indigeneity, learning about indigenous roots. Um, that's something that was sort of that I sort of grew up with. Um, with older Chicanos, I think that interest was more or even remains to be a bit more casual but uh for whatever reason i took a much stronger interest in it uh probably because um especially with um uh the immigration community the, the immigrant community we have now in california which is very uh, which is very southern mexican uh for me there was at least a lot of access to people who came from very different uh, cultural backgrounds, yet who were still Mexican, right? People who were very um, colonial, white, Spaniard people who probably came from like Guanajuato or something, all the way to pe people from Oaxaca, Chiapas, who come from more indigenous backgrounds, who still speak Mayan or, or Mixtec or Zapotec, right? Here where I am in Fresno, there's a big, it's it, the, the Southern Mexican community is pretty large. And so that gave me a lot of access to people who I just became interested in, uh, in particular. People who still practice, practice things that, uh, according to my Ch Chicano background, should have been revived, right? Uh, if you look at um, Chicanos in like LA and stuff, like, uh, the manifestation of that philosophy came in the form of things like Aztec dance or people trying to learn Aztec, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on the Aztec culture, which, which makes sense because that's, that was based in Mexico city, which is the, which, and Mexico city kind of decides what mainstream Mexican culture is. Right. Um, but I, I just got really, I just got deep into it. I was very interested in learning more about 
uh, various communities in Mexico, uh, especially because my own ancestry is more northern, which had nothing to do with the Aztecs. Uh, and um, and since there were a lot of southern Mexicans in the area, they weren't Aztecs. They were these other smaller groups. And that just gave me, that just, I guess you could say, encouraged my, my uh, that access encouraged my, my interest in, in, in that topic. And so, and then also kind of realizing how uh, within Mexican culture, there is a lot of um, inter-Mexican uh, racism that is, is fairly prevalent. Um, if you're darker, you're, if you're darker skinned, you're, you are sort of more oppressed, even within the Hispanic community. If you speak, if you speak an indigenous language, you're, a lot of people, um, especially, especially people from like cities, they, they tend to look down on that. And that's something I, that's another thing that I became more aware of while interacting with the Southern Mexican community. So in college, um, a big motivation for me to, to um, study linguistics in the first place was to sort of legitimize the practice, the, an oppressed practice, an oppressed um, indigenous Mexican practice by studying it, right? That's sort of, that was a, the main motivation for me. Uh, while I was in San Diego, I, I also became uh, involved in various um, nonprofit organizations. Uh, uh, after in the evenings, I used to go teach English to and Spanish to um, uh, uh, immigrants from Oaxaca because some of them are uh, some of the immigrants that arrive. They they are monolingual in their own language, which might not be Spanish. So sometimes they even needed this to learn Spanish, and um, that sort of that was sort of how. That was that was a manifestation of how I saw myself um, as a scholar. Like I was more of an activist scholar, specifically um, grappling with the issues of of uh, indigenous Mexicans, people who still practiced these um, this culture that supposedly was wiped out by the Spaniards. That supposedly that um, as a Chicano I was supposed to cherish, right? At least at some abstract level. Um, yeah, and so that's that's really how I saw myself. Uh, that's how I developed my identity. And then being Latino myself, that sort of facilitated that, right? If I was not Latino, trying to help a a, a super minority within uh, the Hispanic community, that maybe that would have made less sense. But I was also I'm I was already someone who kind of had access to this community, at least in a cultural way, just by virtue of being. Uh, having my ancestry from the same country or having just having some cultural similarity right and so uh, going into my PhD program that's the mentality I went with while while entering that right I was going to be uh, something like a, an indigenous scholar someone someone who was going to promote Mexican indigenous culture by by elevating by elevating one of uh, one of one of its practices, uh, in particular the practice of language, right, by bringing that more into academia, by having it be more researched, by having more, just more knowledge produced about it. And that knowledge could then be used by those communities, right? Because a lot of these communities, they're illiterate, they don't have a writing system for their language. Uh, by just having uh, more research and more knowledge about their own culture, uh, legitimized by, I guess, the academic field, by, by academia, by, by publishing and all of this, that would give them more tools to use to sort of, to help themselves uh, produce things that they would need to sort of protect their, their, their own culture. Uh, so that, that's, that's the mentality I went with going into the PhD program. And uh, so I noticed while, after, after entering it, uh, how difficult it how difficult it was to sort of have a an activist even in that sense an act an activist uh, agenda as a as a as a scholar because um, PhD programs are not about activism PhD programs are about producing research uh, producing objective knowledge uh, just for the sake of the field itself um, and so. Throughout my program, I always felt at odds with my own um, my own values. Uh, I always asked my like I would I would um, you know produce papers. I would go through my uh, my qualifying papers or 
these um, basically these paper examinations where I had to demonstrate that I could produce uh, a manuscript that could be published, right? And I would write these things and I'd pass eventually. And then I'd ask myself, like, how is this going to help? It? Like, how does this help anybody? Like, I did write, I did do my research. The research is about a Mexican language. So I, I study Mixtec. Uh, and the research was about Mixtec. Yet the topic is too, very abstract. The topic's too abstract to really be used by anyone except for an academic. Uh, the, que the research question is too philosophical and not really based on, on uh, utility, right? On any, any sense of utility. The, uh, sure, there's data that I contribute, that I add into the manuscript, but the, it's very limited, right? It's very limited. It's, it's too limited to really be of, of, of more general use. And so frequently I would find myself at odds with my own values in, in terms of, um, grappling with the, the philosophy of being a researcher or a very objective researcher who has no agenda except to, to produce for the field, right? To produce very, very general knowledge, asking more philosophical questions rather than trying to produce things for real people. Uh, so that's, that was something that, that was probably the biggest thing related to my own background, my own, ethnic cultural background that contributed to my experience. Um, trying to trying to negotiate uh, my role as a researcher and also like my values as helping a as as providing some service to a uh, to a um, uh, super minority within the Latino community. Um, beyond that, uh, I think my experience uh, I think being Hispanic shaped my experience in other in other more minor ways. Uh, um, I'm pretty sure I was like racialized to an extent. Like people would assume that I spoke Spanish. Uh, I didn't. I, I I learned I learned to speak Spanish in college, uh, and so and I, I would say that I still wasn't really fluent yet when I arrived at the PhD program. Now I'm fluent, but that's you know it's taken a while. Uh, so I think I would get profiled that way. And that's, that's sort of a big thing when you're, Mex at least when you're Mexican and maybe when you're just generally Hispanic, being profiled is, uh, is always iffy. Like I always feel weird when I'm profiled. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was still a thing, even in my PhD program. I noticed that like even talking to people who are some of the smartest people in our whole country, like they still profile you. and. Um, and I would, I would sort of think like, well, I did it to myself too, right? Like that's how I'm selling myself. I'm this, I'm a Hispanic scholar studying Hispanic, you know, Hispanic culture, right? Maybe I'm doing it to myself. And so, but yeah, I, I would get profiled. But then I don't know. Yeah. Like, like maybe I, I'm pretty sure I was still profiled by people who didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So yeah, being profiled, that was, that was a thing. Um, and then also, having sort of accessing being able to access other people's research on hispanic communities too and then having the the sort of background to empathize to kind of having having the background to sort of grapple with a topic in a way that other people aren't going to grapple with it i still remember a sociolinguist a presentation done by a sociolinguist from Stanford who was invited to give a talk uh, at, at my department. And she's a, so she's a sociolinguist. A sociolinguist is someone who kind of, who's basically a sociolo sociologist who looks at language specifically uh, and who looks at, um, who basically looks at um, aspects of language that um, serve as indexes for, to, to identify social categories, basically. Uh, and her presentation was about um, uh, Chicano English. And she was a white woman and, and she, was, uh, she was, but her, her interest at the time at this, at this, in this period was Chicano English. And um, her presentation was on Chicano English. And she did this, uh, she, she, her presentation was about this particular study she did with youth, with very young youth, um, with people who are like elementary school age. 
and uh, looking at uh, certain particular identifiers of Chicano English, uh, in particular, like the way Chicanos pronounce words, uh, maybe particular vocabulary that is unique to Chicano English. Uh, one thing I remember uh, vividly is uh, the the way that Chicanos uh, say the word "damn." You know, we will we'll like kind of elongate it and stuff like like and say things something like "oh damn," something like that, like that sort of a Chicano English thing that she brought up, right? And I was self conscious and said like, "Yeah, okay, I guess we do that." Um, but I remember, um, but I remember also being a little bit offended uh, by that presentation because it just it just seemed uh, very invasive from my own you know from my own in, uh point of view like she would play recordings of a girl who was a chicano girl like a mexican-american girl who was probably uh you know probably less than 10 and just talking about her in a way that you know in in a scientific way right using using the scientific lens to discuss you know this this phenomenon that is just that is being displayed in the that is manifested in the behavior of some person right and who you are you have no like personal attach attachments to but i i remember just thinking like well this could have this person could have been my sister like this could have been my cousin and i would have felt really uncomfortable if if this person was like presenting this type of stuff about my sister or cousin yeah, and so that that was something that was sort of awkward for me, realizing how well noticing just how finding myself uncomfortable with the kind of ra racialization that occurs uh, uh, with at, at universities, and it's manifested in different ways. It's manifested in profiling, uh, and then also another form of profiling, which is uh, sort of I guess white people seeing you as 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 a research topic, like that's just to just just to put it that way. I guess um, that's um, so that that that's something that definitely shaped my. That's th those are ways in which um, my background has shaped my experience uh, in my program. It's had me notice. It's it's had it's. Um, it well, it contributed. It contributed to like my whole research agenda for one, but then also it contributed to how people would perceive me, and my response to that, and then it would also contribute to just how I grapple with with research on on Hispanics. Uh, yeah, depending on who's doing the researching. Yeah, basically, I I I, I found myself making personal connections um, where other people would not. Yeah, God was. I mean, geez, where do we like even pick up on that? And Philly as well. That's the yeah. bad thing about a Zoom call, uh, Zoom call, right? Like, you kind of have to. One person goes, and the other person goes. Whereas if like we were on a table, I think it'd just be like, and I, I, I don't. We we still be talking about Philly stuff, right? Because like we could have gone three hours on that stuff, right? Um, on on all, a lot of the things that he brought up. Um, yeah, um, so I, you know, when, when I applied to graduate school, and, and this goes directly to your question, Carlos, uh, but when I applied to graduate school, uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? So I finished undergrad. Um, I didn't do McNair, and I didn't do McNair because I thought uh, that um, I couldn't do history honors and McNair. I thought you do one or the other, that you couldn't do both. Because I thought, and this was, was kind of the kind of information that was, uh, relate to me was that if you do McNair, it has to be an original paper, an original project. But if you do history honors, that also has to be a, a brand new topic. And I said, there's no way I'm going to write 90 pages, right, in a year, like there on, on two dissimilar topics. Like that's not going to work out. So what do I do? History honors or McNair? I didn't really know much about McNair. So I went through history honors because I was much more familiar with the history department um, at UC San Diego. Um, so, but now I regret that, right? Now I know I could have easily double dipped, right? Um, and nobody would have batted it an eye. But those are, you know, little, little uh, experiences, um, uh, being a first gen myself, right? Being a first gen myself of 
not being afraid of asking, first of all, not being afraid of asking, not being, not being self-conscious that you don't know, right? And ultimately the lessons that you learn, passing those down to your students so that they don't feel those things. If you feel you made mistakes, share those with your students so that they don't have the same, so they have a better college experience than you had. If mine was great, my future students can be better, right? Um, so uh, yeah, so I, I, I didn't know what I was doing in grad school, right? I finished UC San Diego, um, and then it's that weird transition of, do I, what do I do now? <laughs> so, um, uh, I was living in a house, uh, after, after graduation, uh, in 2008 for, oh gosh, with a bunch of people. <laughs> and I said, this isn't how I, this isn't how I want to live in San Diego. Um, so I ended up moving back to the Imperial Valley. That's where I'm originally from. I'm originally from the Imperial Valley. So, um, if you know the map of California, uh, go to San Diego, and then you go about 120 miles east, and then you're almost going to hit the Arizona border. But right before you get there, there's a little green speck. That little green speck is the Imperial Valley. Um, I, we can talk all about that because that's my book project. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so I moved back to the Imperial Valley. Um, I started uh, teaching there, and it was... I, I, again, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did, I did know I want to go back to school. I didn't know what graduate school was, so what do I do? I call up a couple of friends that I know went to graduate school, and they became my academic, deep, uh, my de facto academic counselors, right? And so I applied to programs that they said, hey, these are good programs. Okay, cool. Uh, one of them was uh, UL Washington, and I went there because it was the best, you know, it was the best school and the best package. Right. And I think that's that those are things that I think we, we, we really need to uh, consider. Right. Like if you get into, say, UCLA, but you have to fund your first year, do you and there's no guarantee that they're going to pick up your second year or your third year, or your fourth year. You know, would you want to go that route or would you want to go the more financially secure route? That's that's a, that's also a very good school. So I went the financially secure route with a very good school. And I also kind of wanted to leave California for a little bit. I wanted, I wanted something new. I wanted a new experience. Um, so hence, you know, I went to Seattle and I became a fan of the Seattle Sounders, not the Seahawks and not the Mar uh, Mariners. I'm still a Dodgers fan. Right? Uh, so, but uh, with all its complicated history and Chavez Ravine, uh, but I'm still a, jo a Dodgers fan. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. The, the, I didn't know that we had to pick mentors until I went through the application process. And I was like, oh, okay, this is how this is going to work. Okay, cool. Um, so then, you know, I, I did all that. Um, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of what project I should choose. My MA thesis ended up becoming a project that was suggested to me by my dissertation chair. Uh, I should say co-chair. Um, by my dissertation uh, co-chair. Uh, he, uh, you know, he said there's this community center uh, down in South Seattle. Uh, it's called El Centro de la Raza. I said, all right, cool. Um, I will check it out. Uh, one thing led to another. I did some oral histories with them and with the, with uh, people that were around. Uh, so El Centro de la Raza was started in 1972. Um, and well, the impetus was a lot uh, much sooner before that, but it really launched in 72. Um, so I did, or they, those people are still around. So I did oral histories with them with some of them and i realized i really really like doing oral histories and i really really like doing history us alongside archival work um but then the question I, I again i still i was still having a hard time of was i chicano was i latino was i mexican was i mexican-american what the hell was i right and it and then again those labels change right those labels change depending on context um but in terms of Chicano, my introduction with Chicano was in high school, and that was with Mecha. But Mecha on the border. What does that mean? It means that the Mecha that was there were, by and large, people, the people that were in the club in Mecha, they were, by and large, people from Mexicali, on the other side of the border, in Mexico. Um, so I thought, not knowing what the hell the word really Chicano meant in high school, uh, I thought that Mecha and Chicano meant people from Mexico, not necessarily U.S. Uh, Mexicans or Mexicans in the diaspora. That wasn't what my idea was. It was a, it was a, Mexi uh, a Mexican national organization, right? a Mexican citizen organization, because that was my experience with them. And then at UCSD, 
I had a different experience. UCSD, uh, I had a lot of interactions with, uh, you know, self-identified Chicanos from the greater LA area. So their particular experience had nothing to do with my experience because the Imperial Valley is a very much an agricultural uh, area, again, on the US, right on the US-Mexico border. So very different dynamic than what they're talking about, uh, uh, say at, at, at Boyle Heights, like that, you know, there's, there's a bunch of things that are going on there and there's Dodger Stadium. And meanwhile, you know, the field was getting repainted at the high school and that was like front page news, right, uh, back, back home. So it was a, 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 a very, very different dynamic between, you know, what the term Chicano meant from, you know, me coming from, again, this kind of, this very agricultural uh, community uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border versus the interactions I had with many, many um, people from the greater Alley area. Not, you know, the, 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 the relationships were not as instant as, say, the popular imaginary would have us believe. Right, um, there was a lot of work to be done in that sense. Um, and then I get to Seattle, right? Seattle's by and large, uh, you know, it's, it's by and large a white city. There is no, there's no pills in there, right? Uh, there, there's no pill there. And so it's, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different deal. Uh, history departments are by and large, you know, they're, they're usually majority white um, as are the, uh, as are the undergrads, right? So, um, you know, I, it, it, was, it was a really jar, uh, jarring experience to be, you know, to be away from being the majority to really feeling like the minority in Seattle. Like that was really the first time it really smacked me in the face that, oh shit, I am, I am really like, nobody here really looks like me. Nobody here really talks like me. Nobody here really gets their references like me. Um, and I code switch a lot because I grew up bilingual. Uh, so I code switch a lot without knowing without really knowing uh doing it uh, consciously right it just happened subconsciously and then i'd have people kind of look at me funny i was like oh shit you know i'm sorry like let me let me go back and this is what this means and, and whatnot um so it, it had a lot um i had to learn how to speak in in particular context right in one language or the other which i never had to do in san diego even in the even in the classroom right i didn't have to do that in san diego and i sure as hell didn't have to do that in the Imperial valley uh in Calexico. Um, so, you know, once I, once I get to, uh, to Seattle, uh, this is really when I get, I start to getting this sense of, yeah, I really, this, this, I really am Chicano. I really am Latino. Right. And I'm not, I, I'm not remotely ashamed about it. And if anything, I need to work really, really hard uh, on myself so that these histories don't get lost or they don't get left, uh, they don't get left to, uh, for others to tell. Right, kind of like your your story, Carlos, about this uh, social linguist who uh, I I, I the, and the way I heard that that story, Carlos, uh, was that that this person almost treated Chicanos as a pet project, right? And that and that and that to me is like it's, it's rather infuriating because you know as I was doing these oral histories at Central La Raza and as I progressed in my graduate education, that's when I said no, that like this is very personal to me. It's it's you know it's strong intellectual work. But it's very, very personal to me because, again, there is no one, there is no single um, Latino or Chicano experience, wherever, wherever you may be. And so every, uh, the, the larger diaspora from, from Central and South America, right, grouping, group, everybody's grouped as Latino, right, that includes people who are, you know, they can be um, uh, people of, Afro, of, of African descent, or they can be, you know, the sons and daughters of diplomats. Right and 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 be and be white in their country. Right, there's a, there's a grand disparity there, right. And so my as I progress in my in my in my degree in my excuse me in my program, um, I really really wanted to think about how to do history as ethically as possible, and but also be as critical as possible, right. And that you know the the sense of of my ethnic identity. It was, I, I, I struggled quite a bit with it because <clears throat> as I was writing the history of El Centro de la Raza, and, and especially as I was doing my, my dissertation, um, I was starting, I, I felt, am I being a traitor? Am I being a traitor to my own raza, right? Am I being a traitor to my own people by, throw, by being really critical about certain historical actors? Right? Am I being really critical of people who struggled really hard 
against city governments, against state governments, against the federal government to achieve, you know, funding. Uh, Head Start being one of those, right? Head Start or whether it be, whether it be Vista or there be some other program, uh, federally funded programs, like almost to gain access to these programs, the grants in and of themselves were almost reproducing the racialized language of the state, right? But then they get funding and then they kind of, they, they on the ground, the reality is different, right? They're providing services and whatnot. But I was, I was struggling quite a bit, quite a bit with it. Um, again, am I being a traitor to my raza? Am I being a traitor to my people by writing this type of history? And ultimately, I, 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 I let that go. I said, no, this, this is necessary, right? This is necessary because, you know, if, if we don't take a critical look at the past, then ultimately we're just, I'm not going to say we're going to end up repeating it. I don't like when people say that. <laughs> I'm not gonna, so it's not like we're going to end up repeating it. But I think a lot of the trends are going to be coming up again. And so if we take a critical look at history, then I think we can really, really understand the struggles that people went through on the ground to make the changes today, right? And so that we learn so that hopefully we can make a better tomorrow from the mistakes that they made and the mistakes that we're doing today to make a better tomorrow. Um, and it was, it, I mean, like, like I said, it was, it was really, really hard. Right? It was really hard to, uh, coming to terms with that. Uh, you're talking about, uh, Carlos, you mentioned about this, this sense of, uh, or this idea of, uh, of, of, of you know, racial profiling. Um, I, I mean, at times it kind of bothers me, right? Like people want to start talking to, start talking to me like about, you know, whatever the Selección did, the Mexican national soccer team, right? It's like, oh, I don't know. I actually missed the last World Cup because I was busy writing my dissertation. Um, like I, I legitimately missed the last World Cup. I don't like I was talking about it. My friends turned around. It's like, yeah, dude, you're talking about, you know, the one that you're talking about passed like eight years ago. Oh, shit. That's right. Um, my bad. Um, so even some of those things, you know, kind of do, do get annoying. And the, um, but what got really, really annoying was like one time when I was walking down to Seattle, uh, down in the in Capitol Hill, because Capitol Hill right now in Seattle is known as the, it was known as the CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, right, with the uh, George Floyd protest. Um, then became the CHOP, the Capitol Hill, oh gosh, I forgot what the OP stands for, um, but Capitol Hill something. Uh, but uh, I was walking down there and, you know, there was this one bar that was just like straight up, you know, lucha libre stuff and, and taco this and taco that and it was simple a mile so of course people were you know being idiots and whatnot um doing kind of like the the, the mariachi yell right um just but you know with the help of tequila plenty of it and and i i, I remember walking uh back to my car getting into my car and driving home and feeling like absolute crap and i felt like crap because i said and I, this was like maybe my fourth or fifth year in grad school and I said, my goodness, no matter how hard I work, no matter how hard I struggle, no matter how hard, no matter how many things I achieve, I can still be boiled down to a caricature. And it's okay. Why is that okay? Right? Why is that okay? Why is that okay for and oh no, it's just in good fun. Like, oh, maybe to you, but you know, if we have the same access to the same institutions, to the same structures, then we can talk about it being fair. But until that's a reality. Right. Uh, I don't I don't I don't I don't think it is. Right. I think I think it's ultimately that that quote, it's just being playful. It's just being, you know, we're just being funny. It's just a good time. It's, it's just a way to not even be casually you know, racist. It's a way to essentially keep minimizing those those of us who struggle really, really hard uh, to get into these to these very difficult programs and, and really just want to succeed. Right. And finding it very, very hard to succeed when you're told, you know, or when you see these images, and again, it's something out of like, you know, the three amigos, right? Um, which by the way, was so frustrating because I really liked that movie as a kid, right? Cause that was like, the, right, it was that and like Cheech Marine's Born in East LA, right? <laughs> like, so, uh, sorry, um, uh, what's it called? The uh, uh, Paul Rodriguez, uh, right? Milan uh, Tuquan and whatnot, right? All those movies, anyway. Um, so, you know, as I was doing this, you know, how, making these, how, how, how did all these experiences influence the way I write and approach history? Again, how do I be an ethical historian? How do I be a critical historian? So when I do oral histories, especially when I do oral histories, 
um, I involve the narrators in the process as much as possible, in the, in the writing process as much as possible. So I say, hey, you know, did I get this right? And make sure, you know, can you see this to make sure that this is, this is right? If I write, if I think I write the most brilliant paragraph, but then they say, oh, you know what? I don't feel comfortable, of, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable sharing this anymore. Hey, that's fine. Let's, you know, let's, let's nix that paragraph. Let's think of something else, right? Because again, ultimately my response, these are not my stories. These are other people's life experiences that are, that make up their identity and they're entrusting me with their life stories. And I definitely need to be much more, you know, I need to be respectful of them and to be mindful of them. And I need to make sure that I not necessarily like, off, like portray them in 100% of a light that they want to be portrayed. Um, but nevertheless, still be again very very um, make make these ethical choices as to what things am I going to include or not include uh, in the in the in the published piece. Um, and again, you know, very similar problem that you were having, Carlos. Uh, what's this for? Hey, what am I writing these publications for? Who is this book going to be for? Um, who are these? Right, who, who is this? Like the master's thesis, who's, who the hell's going to read it? People that, you know, worked at El Centro de la Raza or that, you know, are still involved in it, there's a lot of language there that's inaccessible, right? Because I'm writing for an academic audience. So in graduate school, um, again, going back to the ethics um, and about, you know, my own sense of being Chicano, I said, you know, so I learned quite a bit about the Chicano movement, not again in high school. Um, uh, Quite a quite a bit in college. Uh, I had the good fortune of working with uh, uh, David Gutierrez uh, at UCSD, um, and but it wasn't you know I, when I started doing more primary research for my own project, um, you know I read I read El Plan de Aslan right El Plan Espiritual de Aslan and El Plan Espiritual El Plan de Santa Barbara, which is basically what you know the the kind of two the Magna Cartas so we shall we say of the Chicano movement. And right there, uh, laid out in those plans is the sense of uh, Chicanos going and getting their educations. And I say Chicanos because it was particularly for Chicanos, right? This was like the Chicano movement. Um, but it applies to like, I, I think it should apply to all Latinos. Um, but I'm speaking in particular to, to Chicanos, about Chicanos. Um, it says, yeah, you know, Chicanos go out and get educated and then they come back to their neighborhoods, right? And they give back and they share that knowledge. And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely 100% down with that, I agree with that. Um, so in doing these oral histories, uh, I said, there's gotta be more than I can do. And then I discovered uh, something called public scholarship. And in public scholarship, I, really, I, quite, I got quite involved in it at, at the UW, at University of Washington, where I did the certificate of public scholarship there. Um, I did this thing called PAGE, which is the publicly active graduate education um, through Imagine in America. Uh, so I, I went that route, and then, you know, these oral histories went up on a website on the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project, and I try to make it as accessible as possible. There are still limits to it, right? Like, um, you know, you need to be able to, you know, navigate the page on the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project in order to get, in order to get at this. Um, if you're somebody that works, you know, 45, 50 hours a week and then has two kids, um, you may not be able to read every single thing that comes out. Right, so you need to be, maybe it's about like how to make these histories into a quick blurb. As painful as it is for the historian to make, you know, to condense 10 pages into 110 words, sometimes that's what you have to do to reach the most audiences, right? And sometimes you have to, yeah, that's what you have to do in order for the communities that you write about to be able to engage you, interact with you, listen to you, and speak back to you. So it was, uh, it, I mean, it's like I said, it's a, it's been, it's been a very, it, my, my sense of, I, my sense of identity, ethnic identity is one that I never thought about again, really, because I just grew up amongst um, Mexican majority. Okay. I grew up me by far Mexican majority in Calexico. Again, it's right on the border. My grandma's house is on fifth street. That means it's five blocks from the actual fence. Right, and then you walk two blocks, and it's the port of entry. So it's really, really close. Right? So um, I, you know, I didn't really think about my identity aside from being, you know, Mexican growing up. Uh, or and then after 18 years old, then I said, okay, there's this thing called Chicano, this thing called Latino. I'll, I'll 
we'll see what's up with that. And then again, with uh, going to grad school and then, you know, coming over to Harvard and then going over to UNR, um, many things, whether, it, whether I think it's whether it's ethnic identity or someone's own, uh, you know, sense of identity, whether it be their personal identity or their academic identity, I think it's always in, it, it's always in process, right? It's not static. So it's, it's, it's constantly changing. And like, that's something that, you know, the history books, uh, Chicano history and Mexican American history and Latino history teaches us that things, you know, are, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly changing, usually from the bottom up. And I think this is, you know, once, once I started to understand that and see that, I became much more comfortable in allowing myself to be flexible uh, with these identities and be flexible to, you know, um, uh, be flexible to even rethinking what the parameters of history uh, should be and what the parameters of teaching should be. Um, because yeah, it, it, it's not, it's not something that's, you know, there's no manual on how to be Chicano. There's no manual on how to be Latino, right? There's no manual on how to be a good teacher, despite what all the damn, you know, teaching credentials tell you, right? Um, my sister's a teacher. So yeah, so I, she, she tells me all the stuff that she went through through her program. Uh, it's, it's a lot of it's existential. A lot of it is experiential. Um, but again, it, it's a process, and it's one that you know that that I, that I think um, has it's gone beyond passion, because passion, as Philly was mentioning, right, passion may not be enough, right, and the and the and the and the, that fuel can burn, and it can burn you out, right. It's a, it's a flame that burns bright, but but can burn fast, and you kind of have to really see, I think, what's inspiring that passion, and once you hit that. Once you hit that spot, right? I think it, it does. It will allow you to progress, um, not just in your program, but in whatever career you decide to choose. Um, and so, but again, I think it really comes down to me, you know, being um, this guy, this Mexican who became Chicano later on, from Calexico, California. It, it it was a it was a very long process to you know to to get to this point, um, and it really is no surprise. That my that, that my book is on the Imperial Mexicali borderlands, right? Because I wanted to. There were so many questions that I wanted that I wanted addressed that other secondary scholarship wasn't addressing. And I said, okay, I'm gonna do it then. Like this is my project. I want to do it because this is my hometown. This is like I, I know these streets. I know the I know the dynamics of of this particular border area. Um, and I'm. Right uh, beyond what what we already know, these experiences that we already know coming from uh, major urban centers across the West and Southwest. Um, so again, I'll, I can keep going, but uh, I will I will yield uh, to Jimmy. <laughs>